Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Jason Marsh is the founding editor-in-chief of Greater Good Magazine, which is published by the Greater Good Science Center. He's also the GGSC's director of programs. If you're not familiar with the Greater Good Science Center, it was founded in 2001 and is based at the University of California, Berkeley. The center studies the psychology, sociology, and neuroscience of well-being and teaches skills that foster a thriving, resilient, and compassionate society. Jason's articles for Greater Good have explored everything from the psychology of the bystander to the reasons why he should finally start meditating. His writing has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal and the San Francisco Chronicle, among other publications, and he's written regularly for the opinion section of CNN.com. Jason has also worked as a reporter and producer at KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, as a documentary producer, and as a kindergarten teacher. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So to kind of frame our conversation here, how did you become involved with the Greater Good Science Center? And where did your personal interest in personal growth and development come from? Certainly, yeah, it's a great question and a story that goes back almost at this point 20 years, which is a little bit shocking to me. (laughs) But when I moved out to the Bay Area about 20 years ago, the Greater Good Science Center was originally called the Center for the Development of Peace and Well-Being. That center was just getting off the ground. They were looking to start some kind of publication. They didn't quite know what they wanted it to be. I just happened to be coming out here at that time and connected with some of the founders who were psychology professors here at Berkeley and kind of pitched them on what I thought they could do with the publication, drawing on some of my experiences and aspirations from my my previous position. And we decided to do an issue as a pilot and... It was well-received, and Hmm. it was at the time called Greater Good Magazine. It was a print magazine, and we have grown other programs out of what we established kind of as an intellectual and scientific foundation Mm -hmm. of our public education programs with Greater Good. We've developed other programs Mm -hmm. building on that foundation over time, and so my role has evolved to not just be editor-in-chief of Greater Good, but to develop other programs that are all focused on translating the science of well-being, looking at research into skills like compassion and gratitude, empathy and altruism, and putting that research into terms that feel more practical and accessible to people outside of academia, Mm -hmm. especially people who are in positions of really great influence over the well-being of others. So teachers, mental health professionals, parents could really benefit from learning more about what the research has to say about cultivating the kinds of skills and qualities that we think are so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's great work and it's very much in line with what we're trying to do with the podcast as well, which is the sort of process of demystifying these big psychological concepts and bringing them very much into the realm of what can you do actionably based off of the best knowledge that exists out there in the world. You mentioned that there was actually a name change that the the center went through where it was, I believe that you said it was something like the Center for Peace and Compassion Studies or something along the lines of that and then transitioned into being the Greater Good Science Center. And I've always had some curiosity about the name Mm -hmm. because greater good sort of rolls right off the tongue, but inherent in it is this implication that there are greater and lesser goods. So (laughs) I was sort of wondering about that. Are there lesser goods? What does the name greater good imply? And is there some kind of broader message or lesson there? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of our focus of our work is on, in some ways, the roots of human goodness. There's this dominant narrative about human nature that humans are truly, you know, inherently selfish and aggressive and self-interested. And that emerging from the research, especially, you know, research conducted by our founding faculty director, Dr. Keltner, who's a psychology professor here at Berkeley, 
research suggesting that there is a really deep human propensity for compassion and goodness as well, and for pro-social, you know, as opposed to antisocial behavior. Not to suggest that humans are only and truly good, but to suggest that there's more to the story than, you know, that we're often told that humans are really just essentially bad. Like, that is the truth of human mm-hmm. nature, and that anything else is an illusion or just a cultural construct. So, you know, there's this idea that, you know, understanding in some ways that the greater good that humans are capable of as well mm-hmm. is really important for changing people's expectations about what they themselves are capable of, what humans are capable of, and then looking for ways we could design our communities, design our environments in ways that really evoke and elicit this sort of better, more pro-social side of human nature, mm-hmm. rather than just sort of perpetuating a lot of the same negative traps that we all fall into. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what's implicit in what you're saying there, maybe even what's explicit in what you're saying there, is that even if I'm narrowly focused on pursuing my own gratification and and personal well-being, I should care about the quote-unquote greater good. Because by serving that greater end, it therefore becomes more fulfilling to me individually. Is is that in line with what you're saying here? Exactly, yeah. I mean, there's a certain enlightened self-interest, you know, that, that comes without a doubt, yeah. So Jason, um, the Greater Good Science Center, which I should disclose, I'm affiliated with in a variety of ways, and I have a deep feeling of respect and loyalty to it and care for it. So I just want to be clear about that up front for those who are listening. You run a series of sort of top 10 insights from the science of a meaningful life. Rather than 10, I wonder if you could give us about five that you think in a few sentences each are major takeaways from the research on what people can do inside themselves to promote well-being and resilience in a changing world? Great question. So there are many, but I'd be happy to try to zero in on five or the top five that, you know, I often come back to. In no particular order, I would say, you know, there's a big and ongoing focus of our centers is on on the practice of gratitude and of not taking for granted the good in our life, the gifts and benefits we receive from others, the goodness also that we we give to others as well. And I think there is often a, a tendency, uh, especially in more Western, you know, individualistic cultures to want to see our own successes as results of our own attributes and our own effort in positive qualities. And I think while that's certainly true to a large extent, there's also it's also true that much of the goodness in our lives is the result of gifts and support we've received from other people. And it's often easy to take that for granted, but when we actually focus on really try to pay attention to those good things in our lives and the sources of that goodness, it really changes our whole attitude and outlook on life. We start to see, you know, the world as one filled with, rather than it being a place that is continually kind of getting us down, a place that is, you know, where we are surrounded by people who are in some ways looking out for our well-being and contributing to our own goodness and success and well-being in life. And I think in ways that that could really change the emotional tone of our lives and also change our relationships with, with others as well. So that's a big one, sort of the, and there are you know, multiple ways to, to try to more systematically practice gratitude, but that is certainly a big one. Right. Also for, for us, I think there is, you know, a strong emphasis on the practice of empathy and of compassion. And I think that often seems easier said than done, or maybe easier when among kin or people close to us, right? It's it's one thing to look out for the well-being of others or, you know, try to be sensitive to the emotional well-being of others. It's something different, though, to try to 
regard people who you could dismiss as the other, as being not like you, and try to empathize, you know, or find a compassionate connection with them as well. And so I think, you know, from um, a lot of the research that we cover, we are always looking for strategies and highlighting really the benefits of bridging some of those differences and building some of these skills of both looking at people who we might see as being part of an outgroup, not like us, and looking for mm. the commonalities, looking for identities that we share with those people and looking for individual qualities that really humanize them in our minds that can really change our attitudes and behavior toward them, you know, to be more, more positive and, and pro-social. But that also changed our own kind of emotional well-being as well. There's research suggesting that, you know, people who hold more prejudiced views when they are, especially in our increasingly diverse society, encounter people who they might see as being, you know, outsiders, outgroup members. Their bodies respond in ways as if they're encountering, you know, physical threats, right? Their, their cortisol increases uh, to the point where it's taking actually a, a physical toll on their bodies over time. And so mm. both personally and also, you know, collectively, there are real benefits to overcoming some of those boundaries between groups. And so, you know, finding ways to find those commonalities, shared identity, and, and humanizing people we might dismiss as the other is really a core practice as well. Definitely. That's great. How about a third one? So I often come back in one form or another to the practice of forgiveness, you know, both forgiveness of, of the self and, and forgiveness of, of others. And, you know, I think, again, I think while forgiveness is often seen as a practice that is good for relationships and good for other people because you're no longer so, you know, angry and hostile toward them, there's also a great deal of research suggesting that forgiveness is good for you personally as well, that harboring a grudge also takes an enormous toll on your psychological and physical well-being and so learning, even if you don't reconcile with the person who you are forgiving, finding ways to let go of, of some of that anger and resentment that's built up over time is also enormously important for your own ability to move on with your life and to not be ruminating constantly on ways you've been hurt and to be able to simply just to, to enjoy your life, have it filled with you know, a little bit more positive attitudes toward others rather than just harboring feelings of anger and resentment. So that mm. also is perhaps one of the more challenging, but also uh, certainly one of the more important practices that we focus on over time and that I, that I really focus on as well personally. Yeah, so, so far, gratitude, compassion, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Hard to top the big three so far. Do you have any other major headlines, takeaways from the science? You know, I'll also point to sort of an emerging body of research on, on purpose uh, and meaning that is Again, I think a sort of central concept to our center, sort of even in some ways inherent or implied by the term greater good, of having a sense of purpose in the way that researchers define it as a purpose to a cause or commitments to things that are not just personally meaningful and valuable, but also have some real social benefit. And again, like having that, you know, sense of purpose to things bigger than themselves is not only good for those other organizations or people that might benefit from your sense of commitment, but also has really profound personal benefits as well. That's great. So we have gratitude, compassion, forgiveness, and purpose. I'm going to remember those four. Yeah. So those are great kind of big picture, timeless suggestions of different content areas that can really influence somebody's life in a positive way. Inside of those, or maybe kind of set to the side of those, 
I myself have a little bit of a personal fascination with what I'll call trends in self-help, which I think is a really interesting point of investigation. For instance, over the last couple of years, maybe this is just me, but I've seen a trend in what I would describe as material related to tidying up. We spoke with Gretchen Rubin on an earlier episode, and uh, she has a new book out, Outer Order, Inner Calm, which talks about this. I spoke with Matt Diavella, who was the director of the Netflix documentary uh, Minimalism, which Rick also appeared on in a segment. And it just seems to be kind of in the milieu of the consciousness right now. Additionally, there's been this kind of rise in what I'll call kind of punk self-help with uh, books like You Are a Badass or The Subtle Art of Not Giving Enough. And I'm just wondering if you've seen, if this is just some kind of a confirmation bias thing that I'm going through right now, where I think there are trends, so I see the trends. Or if you yourself, as an editor of a major publication that traffics in this kind of material, have seen different trends in self-help. And where do you think those trends come from and why do they arise? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I think you are definitely not wrong to recognize you know, the existence of both the trends that you, you mentioned and also just the fact that trends do tend to exist within the world of self-help. I mean, you know, perhaps the most obvious one, at this point it seems so obvious that it's easy to overlook, is just the basic term and awareness of the practice of, of mindfulness. And the real omnipresence of that term now was not really the case even six, seven years ago, right? When we actually first started Greater Good as a print magazine, you know, in the first few issues, in the first few years, this is 2005, 2006, started covering some, you know, emerging research on mindfulness. And it was a relatively new, we would always have to define what the term meant. And it was a relatively new concept for a lot of our readers. And we would try to cover new books when they were coming out that had mindfulness in the title. They seemed, you know, they'd be relevant and many of them growing out of the research. Now that would be completely impossible. We literally are receiving at least a book a week with mindfulness in the title. Um, and there's some advantages to that. There are some perhaps pitfalls, I think, of popularity. There's definitely, I think, risk of there being a certain fad and there being a, a kind of, you know, somewhat superficial nature to some of the coverage of and, and use of, of the term. But, you know, I think something as similar has emerged with practice of gratitude as well. And I think in both of those cases, it often, and this is certainly, you know, perhaps my own bias, but it often seems to come from developments and trends in the research. And, you know, when you look at the number of studies published with mindfulness and with gratitude or with gratitude in the title or as a keyword, there's just incredible exponential growth from the late 90s, early 2000s to today. Uh, it used to be possible to kind of keep tabs on almost all of those studies. And now it's it's completely impossible, right? There's hundreds, if not thousands of studies um, every year, a couple of years coming out on those topics. So it's been really interesting from our perspective to watch some of those trends in the research really then manifest out in popular culture. So because you're very much on kind of the bleeding edge of this in terms of being aware of that underlying research, which I, I would imagine a lot of other people, even the kind of person who's listening to this podcast may not be out there reading the research articles and the like. So is there a body of research that you see emerging right now that you think could be that kind of next thing? Yeah, good question. You know, it's interesting because I think what comes to mind most immediately for me is not necessarily a new, completely trailblazing topic along the lines I was just describing, but actually a much greater interest in kind of deepening the 
body of research that exists on a few core topics like mindfulness, gratitude, self-compassion even. And I think that means often looking to see where does the research, what are some of the limitations in the research to date? A lot of the research has established what some of these key concepts or constructs mean. And now it's a matter of, okay, we've, we've established with a population largely often of white middle-class college students that there are certain benefits of these practices. Now can we try to extend that work into more diverse populations? So I think mm -hmm. certainly, mm -hmm. especially this is true in the realm of education, I think a growing interest and awareness that there are large populations that have been ignored by the research, you know, around whether it's around you know, general social-emotional skills, whether it's about mindfulness or, you know, emotional awareness, that, you know, there's real opportunity to figure out how some of these practices, whether the, ben the benefits are similar in different types of populations or whether there are mm -hmm. ways that they should be customized and adapted to different populations in order to maximize their potential impact and social benefit, as well as looking for ways to bring them into different settings like prisons or workplaces or, you know, hospitals to see how and whether these benefits extend to, you know, really you know, specific populations that have particular kinds of needs. So that I feel like, especially now in the research today, is we're seeing not necessarily completely new constructs uh, on our radar as much as really new applications of some of the key concepts and constructs we've been following for a while. Yeah, Jason, you may know already this acronym WEIRD that caught my eye when I came across it in reference to those studies that almost all studies, certainly in the Western scientific literature, have to do with populations, people who are Western, educated, from an industrial country that is also rich and developed. Mm -hmm. I think those are the, that's yeah, the exactly. acronym, yep. WEIRD, right? And when you sort of move out of WEIRD studies, you find new and interesting things yeah. to support what you're saying. I want to bring up a kind of related point, which has to do with the general territory of personal development, personal growth, human potential. What's missing in a big way? And for example, as you know, I have a kind of be in my own bonnet about the fact that what's missing so often is the movement from state to trade. Right. In other words, what's missing is, is an underlying focus on actual change over time, actual durable growth or healing that becomes acquired within a person that they take with them wherever they go. And uh, it's relatively easy and no big deal to induce various states of gratitude, forgiveness, compassion, self-compassion, et cetera, like going through what you said. But how do we actually help them have lasting impact, which means fundamentally, as you know, creating durable changes of neural structure or function, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that would be one thing I would bang on as a real uh, opportunity that greater focus might, you know, could develop. Okay. Yeah. So that that would be my nomination mm -hmm. for this question. Do you have a, a different thing that you think is an area of sort of missed opportunity or, or it's, it's being left out and we really ought to pay more attention to it in this territory? Sure. Yeah. And, and maybe less missed opportunity as much as now an emerging opportunity and, and perhaps mm -hmm. like the next likely phase or development in a lot of the research, which is that as we were just discussing, building on what you're we uh, just discussing, a lot of the research to date on some of these skills are with, a f in, in many cases, a fairly homogenous population. And there's the fact that a lot of the benefits documented from 
practices like, say, gratitude or, or, or mindfulness suggest, on average, these practices carry real benefits to physical, social, emotional well-being. But even within those results, there's great individual variation, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily know which practices are actually the best fit for which individuals, mm. or whether there are certain dosages of certain practices, right? That's very interesting. Individualizing treatment, yeah. Exactly, yeah, which, you know, it, it seems like a logical growth the next phase in the research, right? There's first just establishing, yes, these practices do seem to, to work on average in general. And then there's this next phase of, okay, let's drill down a little bit more deeply and figure out, is there certain populations, certain personality types, people in certain social circumstances for whom certain practices are actually going to carry greater benefits, or there might be ways of practicing, doing some of those practices that could work more for certain people based on demographic factors, social factors, we know whatever it may be, that are going to actually have a greater impact. Can I put you on the spot here about this? Sure. You can decide later once I do put you on the spot. (laughs) But anyway, this is great. So you are deeply immersed in this material. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of how you've needed yourself to individualize the application of some of these general ideas or practices to yourself and to your own neurotic psychology, as (laughs) as we all have? Yeah, so... I, for example, like a lot of folks, when I first learned about the practice of keeping a gratitude journal, tried to do it and enjoyed it. And then soon got bored and kind of annoyed by it. What was annoying? It felt like a big chore, right? It felt like I was often Ah. coming back to a lot of the same ideas and I was trying to come up with new ideas. But even like the ways that the ideas were new started to feel somewhat repetitive and old, right? Exactly. (laughs) And then sure enough, there is some research suggesting that like how frequently you do a gratitude journal might affect the the kinds of benefits. You know, there could be some evidence suggesting that, uh, some evidence suggesting that, you know, fewer times a week might actually carry more benefits. And there was at least Mm -hmm. one study suggesting that. And it's unclear, to be honest, from that research, whether that's true for all people or whether just certain people, some people might benefit more from doing it more frequently. Other people like me might, you know, take a perhaps more measured approach to it. So Yeah. So for me personally, that has been one example. And there is also evidence just on the practice of gratitude in general, in a similar practice, if I could kind of generalize from there and go from the kind of the more personal to cultural, there's some research suggesting that the practice of gratitude, not necessarily from a journal, but from writing a gratitude letter, did not have the same benefits among students in South Korea that it did among college students in the United States. Mm, mm -hmm. And there's the authors of that study speculate it could be just because in a more, perhaps more collectivist culture, there's other connotations associated with the expression or feeling of gratitude that might have more negative or at least less positive and sort of novel positive benefits for people in that culture as opposed to a more Western culture like the United States. More yeah, That's very interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm. As a kind of extension of that, do you think that there are ways in which some of the research on particular topics has been kind of abused or misused by people? Sure, sure. I'll give one example, which is maybe a somewhat contentious example or a matter of some debate within the education world, I guess, which is research on grit. Mm, mm -hmm. There has been some promising, exciting work done by Angela Duckworth at UPenn and, and others suggesting that persevering, you know, on even under challenging circumstances, is associated with all kinds of positive outcomes academically and and in life. 
And I think a lot of folks in education, as well as in the corporate world, sort of latched on to those findings. And I think beyond even what the researchers themselves would have originally recommended or intended. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, that is still a, a new and emerging body of research. It's still unclear whether people can sort of develop their own practice of, of great people who maybe weren't that gritty to begin with can to kind of develop their own practice and enjoy a lot of those same benefits, right? There's still, it hasn't necessarily been been disproven, but I think that, you know, the, the jury is still out, the research is still emerging. But I think certainly there has been a real tendency to latch on to and perhaps over-interpret some of those findings that are still mm-hmm. emerging. Yeah, we actually had uh, Dr. Duckworth on the podcast mm-hmm. to talk about this very topic, mm-hmm. uh, the topic of grit generally. But then in the course of our conversation, she herself, we asked her, are there some of the ways that you think that your work has been kind of misappropriated or misused? And she actually raised basically exactly the same thing, which was this point of the work was done in a relatively specific context. And now it's being applied to all of these other contexts wherein it may or may not have the same benefits. and. In addition, she really kind of hammered this idea of she has sort of this passion and perseverance equation with regards to grit, how you know she can be in a group of people and speak for 55 minutes on the benefits of really forming a lot of passions. And then at the end of it, they're going to ask her all about the perseverance element. How do I make my kids study their musical right. textbooks more, <laughs> right, right. more deeply and profoundly? And she kind of goes, well, wait a second, I just spent an hour telling you how they have to actually care about it fundamentally. So yeah, yeah, I I do think there is is a real tendency that we have. I don't know if it's a cultural tendency. I don't know if it's an individual tendency, but a tendency to want to kind of appropriate a a very, very good body of work and stretch it to its kind of realistic breaking point. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a desire that's sort of in some ways at the heart of our work here at the center. People are looking Mm. for the answer for all kinds of social and personal problems. And, you know, obviously it's hard to fault them. I think, you know, we all probably feel the same way. And I think part of what we've tried to offer is to say, hey, look, there's a lot of of folk wisdom, a lot of conventional wisdom out there. We're going to try to elucidate for you what the science suggests is the most promising path. And often the science is not yet conclusive, right? And I think Mm -hmm. we often have to resist the tendency internally in our center to try to overstate some of the findings that do exist and also to try to guard against the tendency people may have to really look to any one piece of research as, you know, a definitive answer. So, you know, it seems like a very natural tendency to to want those kinds of answers and, you know, a good ongoing challenge, I think, for anyone in this role of communicating the research to try to do so in an appropriately kind of measured way. Yeah, just stepping back myself from this whole territory, I think about the quick fix idea in Mm -hmm. two kinds of areas, for example, and how the interest in a quick fix, that is understandable at the individual level. People just want help. They want something they can do in the middle of a difficult, complicated, overwhelming life often. On the other hand, that tendency toward overvaluing the quick fix can also be used by policymakers Mm -hmm. and corporate managers to serve institutional purposes that are distinct from individual purposes. And I'm sure you're deeply familiar with the tension sometimes between the personal and the political. In other words, the ways in which that's set up often as a false dichotomy that said, I've seen numerous situations, especially in large organizational environments, where managers or owners latch onto what I'll call a quick fix Mm -hmm. of some kind of inner practice, some kind of internal psychological practice of stress management or grit development, et cetera, that would then enable the organization to keep on chugging 
right? With fewer costs, with more profit, less employee turnover, and less squawking and protesting. So, for example, you know, the, the focus on grit in school systems that in conventional ways are very often focused on making kids test to certain content, which everyone knows they will forget within months after the test, if not hours, and they'll never use for the rest of their life. And yet we force them in that system. Well, if kids become grittier, as it were, then we're going to get less pushback from the kids and their parents. And we won't have to do the hard work of helping to foster inner directedness, internal passion, as Forrest was saying. So I just wonder what you've seen. This is a big, messy question about the ways in which the inner psychological benefits of practices of different kinds and using different ideas can be Mm co-opted or misused even or used for other purposes that are really about profitability, maintaining the status quo, enabling entrenched interests to stay entrenched and so forth. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, the area where I think this has perhaps been most discussed and contentious is around mindfulness practice, you know, sort of, you know, generally speaking. I think there has been both this embrace of mindfulness in corporate contexts and then a backlash, uh, often with very good reason, that, you know, there is a desire to embrace the practice as a way to, you know, sharpen focus and, and productivity without really like a deeper kind of attention to the, you know, potential broader implications and and meaning in the mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. in you know, sort of a, a more pro-social sense of it, you know, sort of neutering the practice of uh, any suggestion that it might also, you know, encourage, you know, a more compassionate and pro-social orientation toward others or toward the world and and actually focusing strictly on the sense of uh, mindfulness as a tool for, you know, sharpening attention. And I think there has been a, a backlash against people, organizations trying to embrace the practice for reasons that strictly serve the bottom line in ways that both potentially risk exploiting the, the term and the practice and people doing it and also kind of, you know, neutering it of uh, mm-hmm. its true meaning. So, yeah, I mean, certainly like in a corporate context, that's one that I think is comes to mind for me and I think has already been one that has been discussed maybe most frequently among people, you know, yeah, among both sort of workers and and management alike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to just kind of muse for a second here, it sounds like an underlying theme that we've raised a few times during this conversation is the question of to what end? Mm -hmm. Because you can have really, really great research around a particular topic, but to what end are you directing it towards? So of course, mindfulness can be used simply as a tool to sharpen attention, as you were saying, and increase productivity. But is that really the end that even the research itself is suggesting is the most valuable for individuals? So as Rick was saying, maybe on a corporate level, it's really, really valuable to increase productivity. But for me as an individual, the value of mindfulness is more in the ability to inquire into my own interior and get a deeper sense of what's going on. And I think that there is going to be this natural push-pull that exists between those two desires as we continue to move forward, both the research and otherwise. It's probably one of the primary tensions in terms of your guys' work at the Greater Good Science Center in sort of demystifying this whole thing and interpreting that for people. Right, no, exactly. And I don't want to suggest that some of these other ends are mutually exclusive, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. With some of these positive personal benefits. 
but there are ways where the balance can be thrown off. And there are certainly conditions where practices, I mean, gratitude and appreciation is another good example in a corporate context where, you know, you're fostering a greater sense of appreciation and gratitude for the ways that others are contributing to your work for an organization to really, truly appreciate and be grateful to, you know, its entire workforce and make them feel like they are more valued and seen as individuals, that is going to both improve sort of their personal and emotional experience in their organization, perhaps increase their sense of connection to others within it. And also, you know, some evidence suggests very likely improve the bottom line as well, improve their, mm-hmm. you know, productivity, improve their sense of commitment to the organization, maybe even, you know, in some evidence, some research suggests maybe take fewer sick days even. But mm-hmm. just because it's having those corporate, you know, organizational benefits doesn't mean that there isn't also some real personal value as well. But there are times, obviously, where that balance can get thrown off and mm-hmm. there could be too sharp of a focus just on what's good for the bottom line without really attending to what could be truly meaningful and valuable to people individually. Yeah, and I think that that's a great note to kind of wrap the content part of our conversation on predominantly. But I would like to ask you a final question, which is a question that we've asked most of our guests, which is to kind of finish up here. If you could go back in time and based off of the research, based off of the things that you've learned in your time working with Greater Good or just in your own kind of personal inquiry over the course of your life, if you could go back and speak to a younger version of yourself, whether this be at five or at 15 or at 25, and tell yourself something, what would that be and why? There's so much, but I think one of the main things that come to mind is to... You know, go back to myself of 20 or even 30 years ago and try to encourage myself to be a little bit easier on myself, Mm. to actually, you know, recognize that I am not my accomplishments. You know, I am not just the sum total of my successes and, and should only judge myself based on those. But that, you know, the occasional or even frequent failure is not something to be ashamed of, but something to, you know, embrace and and be able to find real kind of, you know, strength and value in, in being able to accept and work through rather than trying to avoid or deny. So, I mean, it's obviously relates back to what I was saying before about the value of self-compassion practice ways I found it meaningful. But yeah, but that's certainly been uh, a source, I think, a lot of pain, struggle, difficulty for me personally, and only something more recently that I've really been able to identify and try to, to work on. That's, I think, a great teaching, and thank you for sharing it. And also, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it was really a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thanks so much for having me. 